the mission of our company is to build a food system where the vast majority of chicken, beef, pork, and eggs that all of us consume either alone with our families um, doesn't require killing a single animal, doesn't require tearing down a single rainforest, doesn't require antibiotics or hormones, doesn't accelerate zoonotic disease. Um, and that's what we push forward every day on. Welcome to the Antler VC cast. Antler is a global early stage VC investing in the world's most exceptional people who are building the groundbreaking tech companies of tomorrow. I'm Pooja Barwani and together with UC Salavara, we host the Antler VC cast, a show dedicated to learning from the best in the global tech and VC ecosystem. In the series called Stories of Exceptional People, we speak to founders, entrepreneurs, investors, and leaders in the tech and business world. We discuss building and scaling startups, unique investment approaches, tech trends, entrepreneurship mindsets, fundraising, and so much more. Today we have with us Josh Tetrick, founder of Eat Just Inc., a San Francisco-based startup making cultured chicken and vegan eggs. Eat Just was founded in 2011 and is best known for its mung bean-based egg substitute called Just Egg, which currently sells in the United States. The company has raised over $650 million and had last been valued at $1.2 billion. Welcome to the show, Josh. Uh, you are speaking to us from Hawaii, um, and we are here in Singapore. It's extremely rainy here. Um, and uh, let's get right into this problem of food uh, and how you got into it. What is the essential problem that you saw in food? There are a lot of problems in food, and it starts with um, the food that we eat uh, is most linked to more than anything else whether folks are dying of cardiovascular disease, whether folks come down with type 2 diabetes, uh, whether we have zoonotic diseases or not, um, whether we have rainforests or not. Um, and with all the issues in the food system, and we could, we could spend a thousand podcasts talking about it, the thing that is the tip of the spear of the issue is how we slaughter, process um, animals for our consumption whether for a burger or scrambled eggs or bacon that we have with our family uh, in the morning. It's this system of intensive animal slaughter and processing um, that is um, the driver of zoonotic disease uh, that causes a third of our planet, if you can believe it, a third to be used for planting soy and corn just to feed the animals we eat. Uh, that causes more greenhouse gas emissions than all the cars, buses, and planes all over the planet. And maybe more than anything else, divorces us from basic values that I think we all share, like being kind um, and having integrity in our actions. So what we do is to try to uh, do our part uh, to reverse that system uh, and build a food system where the majority of meat and eggs that we eat doesn't require a single animal to be slaughtered, doesn't require trees to be cut down by bulldozers, but still gives us the tasty omelets and bacon and chicken sandwiches that the human animal seems to want so much. Great. And, you know, you talk about slaughter and, 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 and 
being kinder to animals and get to get the food. So let's talk specifically because culture chicken is really new. It, you know, made big splash when it first came here in Singapore at 1880. And, um, I, I, just for our listeners, you know, what exactly is culture chicken? What goes into the process that makes the production of it kind? Yeah, well, I'll first start uh, by telling your listeners what <coughs> conventional chicken is. So uh, conventional chicken is the most widely consumed uh, animal meat. So imagine billions of chickens and these billions of chickens all over around the world are housed in um, factories. And typically they're about 100,000 or so chickens in, in these factories and the chickens um, live there for about 45 days until they're slaughtered. And for those 45 days, they're eating soy and corn day after day, day after day, day after day. And that soy and corn is feeding the muscles and the fat in their body until they get to maturity and then they're slaughtered. And the soy and corn is grown somewhere. And typically it's grown in places where beautiful biodiverse rainforests used to stand. And now it's just fields and fields of soy and corn. That's what conventional meat production is. And no one should be confused that it looks anything different than that. Um, the very small percentage of meat that's consumer pasture raised family farms. And if that was the only kind of meat that was made in this world, I would be doing something different. Um, what we do is to try to get you the thing that you get at the end, the chicken finger, bite or breast without all that other stuff that comes before it. So we don't slaughter an animal, but we get a cell from an animal. And that could be from a cell bank. Uh, it could be from an egg could be from a biopsy of the animal. Um, and now, since we're not dealing with a live animal, instead of feeding an animal, we're feeding the cell. So we're identifying vitamins and minerals, nutrients to feed the cell. And this is instead of the soy and corn, the chicken would be uh, eating in the factory. Um, and then instead of the chicken growing in a factory body to body with 100,000 other birds, uh, we are culturing the cells. The cells are doubling in a stainless steel vessel called a bioreactor. Um, typically, these vessels are used in um, vaccine development or uh, other uses in the biopharma industry. And we're using them for um, sustainable meat production. Um, we have two facilities, one in Singapore that we work with, one in Singapore uh, and one in the U.S. And the end product is real chicken or real beef and pork when we do that. Um, it's not plant-based. It's not mushroom-based. It's not... Um, anything else other than real chicken. It just is made in a way that doesn't require all of the steps that I don't think reflect the kind of world that we want in making conventional chicken. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I'd love to hear a bit about how you personally got excited about this space. If I'm not mistaken, you, you are a vegan or at least you were a vegan when you started the company. So kind of what, what led you down this path of, of building sort of quote unquote cultured products and, and, and getting excited about this. So I, um, I thought that I was going to be a, a professional football player growing up and realized quickly after playing a little bit of college football that I wasn't good enough to do it and uh, spent a little bit of time going back and forth living in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. I was in Liberia and Kenya and South Africa and um, pretty much lost, just trying to, trying to do some good stuff, but I wasn't doing it very well. And I felt frustrated um, at how nonprofits and interna inter international institutions were working. And um, 
I read a book called Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid when I was living in Cape Town, South Africa. And the, the premise of the book is sounds so obvious to me today, but was totally non-obvious when I read it. And it's that to solve the world's most urgent problems, use capitalism. And I thought at the time to solve the world's most urgent problems that capitalism was the thing that is accelerating that, not helping it. And it was nonprofits and inter international institutions that would actually solve things. And I really just came to look at capitalism as a, a system of output. And you can tune that system to destroy hundreds of millions of acres of rainforest, or you can tune that system to restore hundreds of millions of acres of rainforest. It's the intention behind it that really matters. And uh, I got back to the U.S. and was lucky to have a best friend uh, who I co-founded the company with who had opened up my eyes years ago to how we treat animals um, and how bizarre um, animal food production is. Um, and the combination of that book and his influence led me to think, you know what, I want to start a company that is based around um, making this food system better, starting off with changing how we um, relate to animals um, and figuring out a way for us to eat all this good food without all these um, harmful things that we end up doing. And so, the thing is, you know, I will say to people don't, uh, I think sometimes folks think that, you know, um, people in the, in the intensive animal agriculture industry are, you know, bad people. I, I don't think that at all. I, I think, you know, we, the human animal is driven by a lot of different habits and things, you know, get set in motion and you got big companies that are doing it and um, it's hard to stop and you got global supply chains built around ways of doing it. And it's hard to step back and say, does this whole endeavor even make sense in the first place? You know, does it just make sense? And I think if you were an alien looking down at planet Earth and you were having a conversation and one alien asked another alien, do you know a third of that planet down there is used to plant feed to feed animals that these guys eat? I feel like the other the alien would look at the, the other alien and be like, these people clearly have lost our mind. Let's go visit another planet. And when you put it that way, it, yeah, it just doesn't 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 make sense. And like you talk about the system that's broken and and, you know, it needs to. Uh, change and almost like a new universe of tools needs to be built to um, to supply food and and but the problem with a lot of these alternative pr protein solutions and you know you yourself obviously are in this space and it's how scalable is it and the cost of producing um, you know this level of uh, sophisticated chicken through cell based um, you know there's so much science involved there's so much technology involved um, how feasible is it you know, to scale it uh, and, and, and really make it a substitute at a global level? Um, so it's not, you know, it's not too different than if you look at anything. So let's say 20 years ago, you're looking at streaming music. If you would have asked, uh, done a survey of people, uh, and this was done in the U.S., 2% of people said they could imagine streaming music as opposed to buying music. Uh, and now, the vast majority of songs listened to on this day are streaming as opposed to purchased. General Motors a few years ago was fighting frantically against the rise of electric cars. 
a few months ago, they announced they will only be making electric cars. Um, 40 years ago, you couldn't imagine that everyone would have a phone in their pocket. And it's really difficult to imagine that we'll be eating meat without needing to slaughter an animal today. Um, and scale is obviously a critical component of that. We know how to scale it. Um, it's going to require a ton of investment. It's going to be really hard. Um, it's going to take a long time. Um, we hope uh, the fewer number of years, the better. Um, but we we have to make more of it. You know, serving a couple of restaurants in Singapore is obviously it's a nice start, but it's far short of what is required. And to make more of it, we've got to get in larger and larger steel vessels, these stainless steel vessels called bioreactors. So eventually we want to get up to 250,000 liter vessels at a time making meat. We've got to work with countries on regulatory approval. We have to work with consumers to show them that this is real meat just without uh, the issues. So there's a lot of consumer education. People need to get comfortable with the idea that their meat is not made from a slaughtered animal, but is made in a sanitary stainless steel vessel. That's a lot to ask, but that's, that's what has to happen. And billions of dollars in capital, not millions, billions of dollars in capital need to be deployed to build this infrastructure. So the, the activities that need to happen are clear. That doesn't make them easy, though. Yeah, it's fascinating. So when I was looking at the space, obviously, from our point of view at a distance, or my personal point of view at a distance in the sense that not an insider, it seems to me like the scientific community is still quite skeptical um, while, you know, a lot of investment is going to the space. So what, like, what, what is the scientific community get wrong in this one or is it just general risk aversion and you know not believing until you've proven it what is the what is the scientific community from your point of view no just when you're looking at public no just when looking at sort of public information uh, there seems to be naysayers saying you can't do this at scale. I'm not talking about your company specifically, but you know, general in general, the industry. Uh, so I, I mean, I scientific community obviously typically sort of prove it before we'll even consider it in a way. So it's not surprising, I guess, uh, that that they would be more skeptical. But I, it, it just struck me as something I wanted to ask you when. When, when I was kind of doing mm. research into this. Yeah, so if the, if the, the skepticism is um, this will be too difficult to do at scale, and yeah. then like just the way I look at it is, okay, well, it depends what we mean when we use the word scale. So let's say the word scale means tens of millions of pounds per year. And now one's definition of scale can be different, but let's just go with that. So it means the facility is producing at least 10 million pounds per year. Well, then to do that, that means you need to get out of 1,200 liter and 5,000 liter bioreactors and into 100,000 liter plus bioreactors, 15, 20, 30 of them in a single facility. So what are the limiting steps to get to that scale? Well, so one limiting step is capital. Okay, so maybe the scientific community that you're referring to is saying that the kind of capital that will need to be deployed is impossible to be raised. I, I would say... Um, we just completed a $170 million raise only to do this. And we have a lot of folks that want to invest that couldn't even get into the round. And there are plenty of other companies out there doing good work in the space, raising capital and as investors see an ability to 
you know, make a good return, I, I feel pretty confident capital will be available. Let's say the second thing is more of a sort of an engineering challenge that um, maybe there's skepticism that you can actually culture cells um, in vessels at large. Uh, and I, and I would say the physics um, of it, um, of, of culturing cells and vessels at large, we, it is an engineering challenge, but like, what isn't an engineering challenge? I mean, you know, getting more efficiency from a single solar cell is an engineering challenge sending a rocket up to space and it coming back is an engineering challenge. Like if we just didn't do things because they're challenging engineering challenges, we wouldn't have a world, you know, like we have today. So it's, it's not that it's, um, I'm saying, you know, it's certain to happen. What I'm saying is from a pure engineering challenge, all of this is doable. If you have a smart team of engineers, that's really attacking the problem. Um, so we just kind of, you know, I think you need to, we like to, to just unpack these things. And I think when you look at all the component parts, all of a sudden it, you know, it seems pretty, it seems pretty doable because you realize that each one of them, if you have the right people around it can be, can be handled. But, you know, sometimes when you lump it up into a big, it can or cannot be done. It can be, uh, can be hard to see what's, what's what. Yeah, so, awesome. no, I, you need to have trailblazers. So that's fantastic. So creating, you know, and and getting it to this, getting it to scale, to scale, getting the scientific community convinced, capital, yeah, that's all creating it. But the mindset issue is also the other thing. And you mentioned, you touched a bit on that. On you know how, uh, uh, what would you say is the biggest hurdle in uh, consumers, uh, you know being hmm. adopting this as, 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 as actually a uh, regular chicken. And, and you know, because yeah. it's first like the education that they need to understand about what went behind this as an alternative yeah. protein. Plus it's new. There's no, there's no research on, you know, are there any effects long-term? Um, so, so how do you um, manage that part of convincing the market that, and the consumer that this is something that you need to do, it's good for the planet and it's, it, it's, it, there's no harm to you. Yeah. I think the first thing we realize is there's, there's probably not anything that is new that if you ask consumers, they could imagine it being the thing. So if you ask consumers in 1978, uh, would you like to drive an electric car? I'm guessing fewer than 2% would say yes. Just like the streaming music example that I gave you, it's very difficult for for human beings to imagine what five, 10, 15 years is going to look like. The best way to get folks more comfortable with it is to put them in the car, to let them listen to the music, to put their fork in some chicken. That's far and away the most important thing. Um, so the best way we can work with consumers is to get it on the menu, to get it in the retailer. Um, and as you know, folks eat it and realize it tastes good and they feel good after they eat it, that's, that's the most important thing. Um, now we've done quite a bit of consumer, uh, work, um, just to give you a, a few headlines on this. Um, the biggest reason people are driven to eat, uh, cultured or cultivated meat is it's just real meat without the issues. People like the way meat tastes. Um, they just don't want to feel bad about it. So at the heart of why people are drawn to this is it's real meat without needing to feel bad about it. 
Um, about two thirds of people that we've surveyed both in Singapore and the United States is over 2000 said that if it may, if it met the taste and the cost uh, requirements that they would um, only eat this and not eat conventional chicken, beef or pork, uh, even plant-based meat eaters say the same thing. And about um, a little bit over 50% of the people that have uh, purchased it in Singapore and we've served it to over 500 people say it tastes good or better than chicken and 88% of people say they feel good about eating it. Now, if I ask someone, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. If I go to a random person in Birmingham, Alabama and say, hey, what do you think about culture chicken? If they're over the age of 40, I'm almost certain they either have not heard about it or would say, hell no, one of the two. But that's okay. They would say the same thing about an electric pickup truck 10 years ago too. And they'll be the first one out there buying a Tesla pickup truck once it's faster than everything else. People just want to do things that works with their lives, right? And it's hard for them to, just like me, it's hard to, it's really, it's hard to see how things work in the future when you're just living in the present. Yeah. But I, I just think with food, it just, you're consuming it versus like a car or streaming. It's like a, you know, that's external. So that I, I almost feel like it's an extra hurdle to convince people. And it's very interesting to see that you've, you know, you got regulatory approval from Singapore and then as well as Qatar. Um, uh, and- uh, Pooja, I think we got, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I got to have a first hand testimony. You tried it, right? You're an 1880 member in Singapore. Yes, I've tried it. <laughs> so, uh, how was it? It was good. It, it really tastes like pure it, it was very plumpy, I found, you know, so it almost tasted like really plump chicken, like extra, like soft and, and healthy. That's what I would say. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah. As, I mean, innovation doesn't happen by asking from the crowd. So I think, you know, yeah. and I think you're, you're right too. Food, food is, there's something unique about food because we are putting on their bodies. And I also think there are a lot of examples with food. I'll give you three. So um, the banana is probably its top two or three most widely consumed fruit in the U.S. today. Um, it's either apple or bananas. I'm, I'm forgetting which is, is the top now. Before uh, the early 1900s, no one ate bananas. We just, we got used to it. Um, I eat hummus all the time today. When I was growing up in Alabama, I had no idea what hummus was. If you would have asked, uh, you know, um, a 20-something in Shanghai, do you like coffee? Uh, you know, 20 years ago, they would have been like, no, ask them if they like coffee today. And they're probably hanging out at a high end cafe in Shanghai. <laughs> you know, so these things just they they evolve. And I think so as long as you're really open with consumers about what it is, what it isn't, and they think it tastes really good and makes them feel good and ultimately they can afford it. I think um, I think it ends up winning. That's the bet we're taking. Awesome. I want to move on now to talk a bit about like, you know, your company building journey, leadership. Um, uh, You've had some pretty major career pivots, uh, pro football to working in corporate sustainability strategy to now entrepreneur. What would you say was the biggest mistake or even challenge? And what did you learn from it? Mm. Well, I'll start, I'll focus on, I'll, I'll, I'll focus on the company and I'll just give a few, but probably before the company, um, I wish I would have started my journey of understanding entrepreneurship a lot sooner. I didn't really understand that 
starting a company could be a career until I was in my thirties, maybe, maybe 29. Um, and I think if I would have realized that earlier, I probably would have started a couple of companies that flamed out or something and learned a lot more before I started this one. So that's, that's one mistake. Um, in, and if I just look at the company, um, a few things that pop up as mistakes are one, it's always tempting to do more things. And in almost every case, it's better for the company if you focus on doing a fewer number of things. And in the early days, I didn't, I just didn't understand that. I thought when people would tell me, you know, Josh, I think you might be doing too much. I would think that they don't understand my capabilities and my team's capabilities. I would think they don't understand how, you know, important this mission is to me and the team. Um, and I think, I think about it differently now. I, I think I want to do many things, but you just got to sequence those things. So that was a big, that definitely was a big lesson for me. Um, and then, uh, Probably the second biggest mistake is I don't think I will drop the word think I didn't appreciate the the import of um, of engineering and scale up and getting these products out. I really focused on the sort of the upstream science, the biochemistry. And I didn't, in the, in the downstream product development, I didn't think about what is the process of taking what you can do in the lab and scaling it to many millions of units. I just had a blind spot there. And that probably cost the company, I don't know, a year and a half, two years of development because I was, um, I was off in that area. So those, those are, I'm sure there are a lot more. Those are things that pop up though. So, um, yeah, I think that whole thing about basically prioritizing when you're building a company uh, and that would very much apply to early stage founders who are very much part of Antler, uh, you know, who, are, who, who in a way don't have a choice. Sometimes you do have to wear many hats when you're starting something new. So would you say that, you know, this experience, um, have you found what is your leadership style? Uh, my leadership style is... Um, for some things getting very much into the details and really driving to understand what limiting steps are. Um, and sometimes limiting steps that we have make a whole lot of sense and sometimes they just don't. So, um, you know, if we can organize ourselves better, better internally to circumvent some of these limiting steps, sometimes a little bit extra capital can help the limiting steps. Sometimes being more creative um, can help circumvent some limiting steps. So I, I do a lot of, you know, what does it look like if we go faster? Um, I set the long-term vision of the company um, and continue to refine and push and communicate that. I'm heavily involved in recruiting and making sure whether it's our, uh, you know, a new engineer for our research and development team or um, a designer for our brand team that they know what this company is about and what we would expect of them if they, if they joined. Um, I uh, meet with customers um, and so I don't, I don't know how that, how that uh, sort of communicates into like what the leadership style is, but that's, that's kind of how I, uh, how I go about things sometimes really into the details. And then sometimes 
focused on uh, communicating and setting the vision and driving some of the, mm-hmm. some of the higher level things. It's, it's fascinating. I was still reflecting on, you mentioned you were, you know, around 30 when you founded a company and I, I was personally 35, uh, just approaching 36. And I, I, I really sort of vividly feel that, uh, you know, sense of lost time. So and yeah. totally great. But I guess you always hopefully have to believe that you learned something in those years that yeah. they were not right. <laughs> Yeah, it's so interesting when I think back to it. Like, if you would have asked me, you know, when I was, let's say, 16, um, and you would have said, all right, Josh, so, like, what do you think about, like, a career as an entrepreneur or starting a company? I would have said, you know, like, the idea of starting, like, a, you know, a, a pizza shop on the corner or a sporting goods store does it really appeal to me? Like I, I, I saw that as, or a, you know, a, a lawnmower business or something, something, you know, more local. That was my idea of what it meant to start a company. And obviously those things are, are great on their own, but I just didn't think of starting a company in this way. I didn't uh, have mentors and heroes. It was more, it was more athletes that I was entrepreneurs and turns out that like my, my way of being, um, really does, um, connect with, with starting things. It's just very much in my DNA. I, I'm very comfortable with a little bit of uncertainty. I don't need everything to be perfectly planned out every single day. I don't, um, I don't need everything to be, you know, perfectly said. I'm, I'm okay. If someone tells me, no, <laughs> that's all, that's all right. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I just, I just didn't, didn't understand it was a real possibility. And I, I do think we would be, we'd be more advanced now if I had uh, screwed up a bit earlier and uh, taken those lessons at, to, to this company when we started it. Many things like that are random. I, I've, I've not sort of, who are you, who, who are the people in your circle and, you know, who do you get inspired by these things? Cause it's a chaotic random world. So uh, well, I, I guess we're, you know, have to be glad we're both there. <laughs> no, I mean. That's right. So you, I just want to go back to what is the mission of your company and vision and, and you know, how does it tie in with the future of food? The mission of our company is to build a food system where the vast majority of chicken, beef, pork, in eggs that all of us consume either alone with our families, um, doesn't require killing a single animal, doesn't require tearing down a single rainforest, doesn't require antibiotics or hormones, doesn't accelerate zoonotic disease. Um, and that's what we push forward every day on. Um, the, the main operating principle for me is Will this decision, whether it's hiring someone or firing someone or taking this capital or that capital or this business model or that or this go to market strategy, will that increase the probability that we get closer to achieving that mission in our lifetime or not? And if it if it does and, you know, it's it's ethical, um, we're probably going to do it. And uh, if it doesn't, we probably won't do it. 
Awesome. And if I could wrap up by asking you, what would be your two pieces of key advice for any entrepreneur starting out? Uh, what would you tell them? Mm. Well, the first thing I would say is, you know, between um, 30,000 kids that are dying every single day still because of preventable illnesses or billions of animals that are behind the walls of factory farms uh, or um, the homeless crisis uh, in the U.S. or uh, millions of kids that still don't have an education. If you're not starting a company that is solving an urgent problem, um, then you really should rethink it. That there's such an opportunity to start a company that is solving one of these problems. And I would say, start your, you know, your company building around what business model will solve one of these really urgent problems that are facing your local community or your country or the planet. That's number one. Um, and then the second thing uh, that I would say is um, focus on doing um, fewer things um, and somewhat connected to that find a, a group of people who are competent, who you really trust, who will tell you what you're doing wrong. Um, and don't always ask them, Hey, do you like this website? Instead, ask them, what don't you like about this website? Hey, do you like how this tastes? Instead, ask them if you were ranking the things that you don't like about how it tastes, how would you rank them from one to three? You really got to beg people for critical feedback, you know? Um, so those are, those are the things that I'd, I'd share with someone. That's fantastic. Words of wisdom to any potential founders there. Couldn't agree more. And, uh, I think everyone deep down is afraid of failure. So that, you know, that last piece of advice around seeking critical, uh, feedback is, is critical, absolutely necessary. Um, yeah, we, we, so I've worked with hundreds of founders now and, uh, it's, it's too few of them focus on this most critical problem. So I think it's something that, uh, hopefully, hopefully will, uh, increase down the line. Yeah. And we think that, um, it's always this, I, I think part of, part of the reason why is there's still a, this mindset that there's not money to be made in solving these social issues, but there is, um, there's plenty of money to be made in solving these, these urgent problems. And I just touched on a few of them. We didn't talk about water yet. We didn't talk about energy yet. We didn't talk about, um, you know, all the companies that should be started in the food system that are not here yet. Um, there's so much to go after. Absolutely. And I think the whole problem first approach and facing your community is something that that is is a big theme and factor. And, and we're seeing this whole uh, almost like force around building solutions for specific communities as, as uh, technology takes over in everything in what we do, how we work. So, Josh, thank you so much for your time. Um, uh, great insights there and really enjoy the conversation and understanding your vision uh, with what you're doing in this space. Well, thank you all. 
It's a pleasure to share it. You have been listening to the Antler VC cast with me, Pooja Parwani and Yusi Salovara. Antler is a global VC firm headquartered in Singapore with 14 locations globally and we are growing. To learn more about Antler, our portfolio companies and our philosophy, visit us at www.antler.co or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Antler Global. Thank you for listening.